Welcome, welcome. This is Morgan Davy of Diceratops for another Diceratops episode, meeting people from Aotearoa, New Zealand, doing exciting things for Dungeons and Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games. Today I'm chatting with Cam Banks. He worked on a Marvel game, he worked on the Smallville game, he worked on the Leverage game, he did heaps for Dragon Mance, he's worked on other stuff we didn't even get a chance to talk about today, like Unknown Armies and the new Alien role-playing game. The big news is the release of his amazing game, Toolbox, Cortex Prime. We'll hear all about that. He's from Auckland. He's back in Auckland. He has some stories to tell. Before we dive in, some quick Diceratops news. Our next D&D live show, Pour Some Centaur on Me, is on Saturday, November the 28th at Batch Theatre in Wellington. Tickets on sale now. On the podcast, next week is the beginning of our new D&D saga with Tom Adams and Jules Bergeser. That's called Beard to the Bone. And don't forget, we're on Radio 2, Rector Radio, out of Kaitaia, 107 FM and also online Mondays at 7 p.m. Right, let's get into it. My chat with Cam Banks. Um, cool. So I am uh, Morgan Davy here for another Dicera Talks session, and I'm chatting with Cam Banks. Cam, hello. How are you? I'm super great. <laughs> Fantastic. Now this is actually um, a pretty cool conversation for me because Cam and I have known each other for quite a long time online, but this is the first time we have ever spoken, to my knowledge and recollection. Anyway, um, I, yeah, yeah. So at least with this whole visual face-to-face uh, -face thing, this is yeah. kind of different. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's it's pretty exciting, and um, it's a very exciting occasion to be talking with you because we are just a few days out from the launching into the world of this amazing book, Cortex Prime, um, which is your baby that you have been working on for some exciting time. Well, actually, the first thing I want to talk about is the art in this book. This is a beautiful, beautiful book, and um, it's got a kind of really distinctive look, covering all kinds of different different scenes and settings. I haven't found the best art pages, but it goes all over the place. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the art. How involved were you in setting that tone and giving direction? And how, how did that all come together? Well, you can see it's behind me. Uh, this is the cover of the book. Uh, this is by an amazing artist. Her name is Marilita Chan. Uh, I think out of Indonesia. Well, Philippines? I don't know. I don't, I'm terrible at remembering where all our wonderful artists come from, but they're all across the world. It's an incredibly global and diverse group of artists that uh, has been brought together. Now, so um, when I came on board at Fandom and we decided that we we're going to make this book into something really amazing, as opposed to being the six by nine digest black and white thing I had originally planned back when the Kickstarter first happened, um, Fandom said, oh, no, we, we need to make this good. Let's do this. Uh, and so uh, armed with a budget, I knew that I wanted to get an art director who understood um, the importance of getting amazing uh, pieces for this. And so kind of put the call out there. So I said, I want someone who isn't your standard graphic designer layout person from RPGs. I know a lot of people and they're really cool, but I wanted someone new who's kind of fresh to this whole process. And so Tina Lam Collier was recommended to me by a friend who saw me put out the request on Twitter. So her friend, uh, saw the tweet and said, hey, Tina, you should totally apply for this. And, they, and then she said, I said, okay, I'll do this. And I'm like, well, what have you done before? And her past work was all packaging design. She had done some work with WizKids. That was about the only real, um, you know, tabletop stuff she'd done, but lots of other kind of ad campaigns. She did a Bible for the fire, uh, no, for the Expanse, um, kind of just for people to use as a, as a springboard for their own, you know, stuff but not something you would actually see the live day. So she had a whole lot of, uh, you know, corporate work, I guess you would call it. And when I offered this to her and I said, here's what we want to do, she was like, oh, yeah, awesome, let's do it. And, and now she's full-time with us on the Cortex team and doing all this amazing work. So she had reached out and went to like millions of different places, DeviantArt and, and, and followed those, the Twitter uh, sort of like streams where it's like, here's some new artists you should check out, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And so we ended up with all these amazing people. Um, we've got folks from uh, literally all over. And at the end of the day, we did a sort of check and we sort of looked went down our list of artists. And of all the 40-something people who were contributing to this book, um, two of them are cis-hit white dudes. And the rest are like, you know, not, right? Um, and for me, that was a big deal. And for Tina, especially, she said that 
you know, we need to make this kind of thing happen. Um, use art that people weren't used to seeing, trying to do different stuff and make it all somehow come together so it looks like it's actually a cohesive book. And that's what she did. So all that amazing graphic work in the book, the layout, um, the, the approach to the, the style of everything is all on Tina. Um, I obviously yeah. had a lot of input because she would ask me questions all the time, but mm-hmm. um, I don't think that I could have come close to being able to put together anything like that. So I'm super impressed with it. Yeah, well, it, it really does kind of convey the, the breadth of imagination that's at work in the gaming industry around the world at the moment and that the game is designed to explore. One of the, one of the cool art things, I haven't even done this properly myself, but there's a little note in it saying yeah. that all through the book, the art is kind of exploring these these archetypal figures in different genres and different settings, and um, invites you to try and spot who's who in each of the different different places. So, w- was that something that you brought to it, or was it that her idea? Where did that come from? Well, we, we talked about it, and I said uh, what I really would like to have is these iconic archetypes, um, which would make it kind of pull together some of the pieces that so you'd see recognizable figures in each of them. Um, and so, all the artists were given. Well, first of all, we had a concept artist. Um, Yu Tang, I think, no, oh, get my own book. <laughs> You're reaching through the artwork yeah, to do that. Very nice. <laughs> Got to find out. Yeah. Um, I'm losing my mind here. Oh, <laughs> Yang Tian Li. Uh, so Yang Tian uh, was responsible for doing these concepts. We had like the hero, we had the the sage and the child and all that kind of thing. Different. Uh, concept characters who had their own look and you can see them in that one uh, picture like the engineer is the one on the cover yeah uh, and she was the character i had already had in mind for you know featuring as a cover concept and using that character a lot she's actually in older cortex material too the cortex plus hackers guide has this engineer character on the front with the goggles and things um and i really went in with that um and so that concept art was kind of like in video games where they give you these sort of uh, stand-up things and they say, you know, here's what we want you to use. <clears throat> and every artist from that point was told to use at least one of them somehow in their piece, yeah. uh, but could reinvent and reinterpret and recast them in some way. But we had specific kinds of angles we wanted them to be, you know, used. And we like uh, one of the characters is clearly has a, um, a prosthetic device on their, um, on their leg. And it, that's the character that had a companion cat, right? Yep. Uh, and so we said, if you want it to be a small cat, a big cat, you can ride on the cat. They could be on the shoulder. Yep. But the two important things were this character needs to have this prosthetic and needs to have a cat. And so that's, yeah. that's something that's in the, in the images too. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to sitting down and kind of going through all the illustration with that specifically in mind. At the moment, I've just been soaking it up and there's a lot to soak up because so the, the um, art direction is really important for a game like this because, of course, Cortex is designed as a um, system that you can use to bring all kinds of different settings to life. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, I've pulled up the page here. The um, example of play that you have is, I think, a really interesting one because you're focused in on a journalist and it's just a seasoned journalist doing journalist stuff. And it's very down to earth. Um, it's a, it kind of stands out very clearly against the stream of gaming material that's often about larger than life characters or uh, larger than life threats in the case of Call of Cthulhu, for example. Um, but this is a journalist doing journalist stuff. So that's obviously a, a really um, clear choice that you're making to convey what this game is for and what it can do. So maybe um, I'll just ask you to give me the pitch about what Cortex is designed to cover. What does it, what does it bring? What kinds of games can you create with it? Because um, it comes out of a, a lot of licensed games that I have worked on and designed uh, with Margaret Rice Productions. I've got Marvel behind you there and uh, we did small film leverage, <coughs> Firefly and so on. In each case, I took the Cortex system and I tried to, adapt it to the property as opposed to the other way around. I always talk about how sometimes with generic games that are used as the basis for licenses, like E20 back in the 2000s, they had to kind of just bend and shape the, the property to make it fit with, you know, levels and hit points and all that kind of thing. Uh, I didn't want to fall victim to that particular approach. I wanted to make sure that whenever you were playing a game, 
based on something else, you felt like you were playing that thing or you were part of that that genre or that setting or whatever, right? Um, and in the process of doing that, I was finding I was rebuilding this game several, several times over. I would have many common threads, the whole dice pool with the different sized dice and rating things and dice was all very common. But even as we were pulling together new games, like when we did Marvel and we later on we did Firefly, we we're like, well, I've used this term before. Do I want to keep using this term? Do I do I care that the last game didn't use it that way? You know, and I wasn't all that fussed by it because it wasn't supposed to be a, gener- a super generic system at the time. It was just designing games. With Cortex Prime, my de- design goal was let's take all the games we did before and I kind of mash them together and make a sort of a huge uh, buffet kind of kitchen sink thing. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of what happened. But in the course of doing that, I realized that what I was really trying to do was create a game builder, right? So this is not a game as it is. It doesn't start off being a game. It's game rules, it's system, but it's the pieces to make a game out of, like a bunch of Lego. And the journalist character, Jane Default, is a good example of like, if you wanted to tell stories about real world journalists and the kinds of conflict they have to put up with and that kind of thing, it doesn't seem like the kind of high action fantasy that you'd normally get with RPGs, but there's no reason why you can't tell compelling stories but then right um and so there's a, a amount of engagement i think you can get just out of seeing someone's actual true life story in some way and the things they have to wrestle with and it doesn't take a lot of actual leaping of imagination to get to there so although i could have used like hey it's the guy with a sword he's fighting a monster yeah i, d- I didn't really want to do that you know and because every other game does that so in this case it was like Okay, so you imagine if you're hard working on a story and you have to get this thing and your editor's you know, slamming on you to get this done in time and all that kind of stuff, how would you make that interesting in terms of uh, the, a play session? And so that's kind of what the Jane Default stuff's about. Yeah, and of course, um, like you, you said that this game came out of licensed material and um, that kind of procedural uh, slice of life in, in just the world around us is it's a big component of what you see when you sit down to watch TV. There's so many medical dramas and um, and police dramas that are really focused on just how people go through their working day that, that are massively underexplored, I think, in um, the kinds of uh, games that the role-playing industry is putting out. So, uh, yeah, you're the basis of Cortex and these, these licensed properties, I, Smallville comes to mind as the, the turning point. I've never played Smallville. I've never even seen a copy of Smallville, but its <laughs> reputation um, is it's enormous. I think it was seen as this, this game that figured out how to put relationships on the table in a game um, in a really uh, rich way, right alongside the same mechanics that you would use to, to govern a more traditional um, approach to, to systems. So, um, yeah, yeah. Is there? Main, sorry. Yeah, Smallville's main main uh, difference, I think, was that we tossed out what would amount to being traditional stats and uh, uh, ability scores or attributes and skills and things. We kind of like didn't use those. And I've often told the story about how when Josh and I were working on this game, some of the other people, Amanda and Bobby and other folks who worked on it, who weren't actually the designers necessarily, but were uh, additional writers, or Amanda was an editor and so on. Uh, we'd all talked about things and kind of got together, shared around early drafts. And uh, these other folks on, on, on the game were coming back and saying, why do you have attributes and skills in the stat block? It looks like the more important thing here is the values you've come up with, which, because we had them as a stat block, you know, values, yeah. and, you know, power, love, glory, hope and stuff, um, and, and relationships. And they said, that seems to be the whole crux of the show. How, why do we care what sort of strength and you know agility and so forth yeah. Clark and Lois have. Clearly Clark's way, way strong anyway, so it kind of doesn't really matter. And so that kind of made us sort of, oh, crap, yeah, you're right. I mean, what if we took those out and just assumed people have stats, you know, just didn't mention them. And that made a massive change to how we did it. And then the play test that Josh went ahead and did after that point, uh, this is Josh Roby, who was, uh, a really, really amazing indie designer and so forth, and now living up in Canada. But Josh had done playtests of uh, kind of a Veronica Mars style uh, setting uh, to disguise the fact that they were working on Smallville. And it works just great for that. Um, and so we thought, 
you know, we're obviously onto something here with this uh, uh, this values and relationships approach. And that was my police officer friends. Nope, <laughs> it's an ambulance. Yeah, so that's the um, the genesis of that. I think, and that, from that point on, we felt we don't really need to be beholden to a lot of the trade stuff. Um, mm. I mean, we really are rooted in it because I mean, I've I've heard Cortex described as trendy, which is my favorite version. I think it's perfect, you know. Um, but we, we go places that some trail games don't want to go. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I really like um, the, the description of it as a, a building system like we go. And those um, trait sets that you're just talking about are, are the perfect example. When I was looking through um, the bit that, that really caught my attention and, and kind of got me immediately excited was over here on page 47. There's just this teeny little box over in the corner um, where you show how you can create different genres by combining different sets of of uh, of traits. So um, for grim fantasy, which is kind of um, a very traditional approach in these kinds of games, you would have the distinctions, which are the core ones that all Cortex games share, and attributes and skills, which would be familiar to anyone who's played Dungeons and Dragons or Call of Cthulhu or any kind of trade game. But then you can do um, heist action using roles instead of skills, which is kind of a more higher level thing. Um, primetime drama uh, in that, that Smallville tradition with values and relationships. And then in the pages following, you show all these different approaches that you can use and you can build kind of different different engines out of which pieces you pull together. And then within those, of course, there's just pages and pages and pages of further little options so you can refine exactly how you're approaching it. It's It's incredibly appealing, but that little box there was that felt like my way in to suddenly get hungry to start creating. And over, over the um, weeks since um, I've been uh, thinking hard about Cortex Prime, I've, I've started I've started developing something. And I'm sure that almost <laughs> anyone that comes and engages with this book would find it very hard to walk away without starting to scribble in a notebook and come up with their ideas. So, um, yeah, this, it brings me back to, um, I think, where I was experiencing gaming in kind of the the nineties before the indie game movement really um, kind of got moving because you looked around then there was the world of darkness. There was Dungeons and Dragons. There were um, kind of a few other options, but if you wanted to do anything out of the ordinary, you really had to build it yourself. You had to go completely off piste and, and freeform something that, that caught your imagination. And I used to love doing that. And some of my best games were things that, that didn't relate to anything else. Um, and then kind of the indie game revolution happened and I started to see all of these amazing, cool other things that you could do. And that kind of took over my gaming life for a, a few decades because there was, there was always more cool stuff to explore. But I have recently been feeling just, I quite want to make something myself. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, yeah, it's a really good feeling to have this this toolkit because I feel like this is going to support me to doing it way more than I was ever able to um, by hacking together Dungeons and Dragons and Shadowrun or whatever it was in the 1990s to try and make something that would that would work. So that was kind of me thinking back to the 90s and what I was doing there. Let's go back in time for you, Cam, because you have a long history in gaming. Um, you are also um, relevant to Diceratalks because we focus on uh, Aotearoa New Zealand designers and creators. You're a New Zealander and um, you didn't stay here in New Zealand, but you certainly started out here in New Zealand. So tell me, tell me a little bit about how you got into gaming and um, where that all came from. Um, like most people of my age, uh, back in the uh, 80s, it was D&D, you know, like it was the the box set you could pick up at Whitcalls and, and, and parents didn't know how satanic it was at that time and so it was all <laughs> fine. Um, but I had a friend from the States who moved to, from Colorado, he moved to New Zealand with his parents and uh, he sort of showed up at our school and, and through another friend of mine, uh, we got to become friends and, and he had all the D&D books, AD&D and stuff from the States. He had Gamma World, he had other things, you know, we just never heard, heard of these things before. And that was around the time that the uh, red box had come out. Um, and so prior to that, my experience of this was through um, the endless quest books and Warlock of Firetop Mountain, uh, yeah. you know, the stuff that came out of uh, Great Britain and things. And so like, you know, the, the Kiwi experience of the eighties was like little game books and choose your adventure, then maybe yeah. getting D and D. 
And then if you could, if you were lucky, you had somewhere like Mark One where you could walk in there and go, oh my God, there's so many things we could just possibly get. Uh, so, you know, we would try different things. And, I, and even very early on when all I had really had much experience was, was uh, Center Star Frontiers and, and that kind of thing. I was making games too. And I was taking exercise books from school and mostly math books and filling them up with things. Um, I wasn't happy enough just doing adventures and modules. I didn't want to do just that. I wanted to make whole games, right? Yeah. So, you know, I was basing games on the backs of uh, Action Man, uh, G.I. Joe figures, right? And, you know, we have a whole game of that. A lot of them were crap, right? But that's the problem when you're about 12 years old and you're making your own RPGs. It's not going to be great. Uh, I think, and then we just progressed to what everyone else was doing. Like, the second edition came, comes out and we did that and whatever. But there was a turning point for me when I discovered, uh, I think it was Amber Diceless role-playing um, at a shop in, just off of uh, Custom Street in Auckland. I went downstairs and they had all the weird games at the time. And Amber was a really big deal because that was diceless. It was about some kind of strange world that I'd never heard of before. I hadn't read the books or anything that Roger Zelazny had written. But that got me into this idea. And I had, I think it's the closest I ever had to internet was indie at the time. Yeah. Because I think maybe that's around when Vampire came out, but we weren't into it right away. And, you know, so I ran lots of Amber campaigns and doing it diceless made me focus a lot more on things like coming up with really evocative descriptions and basing things on, you know, uh, campaign threads and sort of storytelling and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's kind of where it started for me uh, outside of the, the mainstream games that we all had uh, access to. So did you have kind of a, a little core group of people that you were, you were working with through there? Amber is, has never been a widely played game, but it, it pops up time and again, and the inspirations of designers is something that was a real important piece of the, of the puzzle for them. So, um, yeah, were, were you just playing it with the same group, getting deeper and deeper into it? Or? Yeah, my mates from school, um, we grew apart um, in terms of where we lived. But we kept being friends because, I mean, all through um, high school, when I was going in Glenford College, I had some friends who were gamers and we played there, but some of my mates went up to Rangitoto College and so on. And we all met on weekends and hung out and spent way too many hours awake throughout weekends and just playing D&D and, and Marvel Superheroes, which was another of my huge, huge game inspirations. And, you know, they were wanting to come on board with anything. I mean, we, we tried all kinds of things. You know, it's the... It's the perfect game group when you don't really care. Uh, let's just play this game. Let's try it out. And if it's good, then we'll stay playing. And if it wasn't good, then we didn't, you know. Um, but I played like, I ran Marvel Superheroes for like two years, three years, all the way into university when I was down the Waikato and I'd come up on the weekend and play that too. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that experience of having a core group of friends who were all gamers, um, and, you know, every once in a while, someone new would come in the group and would have friends because there were circles of us, you know. But it was vital to me to have that play group. Uh, I think if I was by myself playing games, I would have just been making characters forever and then stopped. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pretty amazing, amazing experience to have a group that, that you could just try all kinds of different things with and that stayed so strong. That's, that's, um, that's will give you a really amazing perspective on... Um, what you're doing with the with the hobby and um, what's possible and what you can explore. So that's that's pretty cool. Now, also um, moving into the '90s, you you spent some time in games retail. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so um, anyone who's a Kiwi knows or remembers Mark One Comics, there's still a Mark One in Hamilton. Um, that's now I think Heroes for Sale up here. I mean, obviously there's a huge big thing about the owners of the company, which is like there's a lot of stuff. But at the time. Uh, they made these franchises. They had the main one in Queen Street, and they said they had franchise operations. There was one in Takapuna, where I was living in the area of North Shore. They had one in Birkenhead. But uh, at the time, when I was just coming out of uh, university, I was thinking, you know, I really want to get work because I had no job. So um, my first job was a temp job I got through um, at a, a rec center. And I was helping to sort of schedule people coming to the rec center. I would clean up the rec center uh, in Glenfoot. And one of the things I wanted to do was like, hey, just have game groups. Let's have games come and people can come in here and we can open up a game club and stuff. Really cool. Young kids, whatever. Uh, the Mark One and Takapuna said, that sounds like a cool idea. We'll help sponsor that. I went to them and asked if they would do it. And after about six months, they said, the guy running it said, I'm actually an accountant by trade. And although I'm, I own this, this company, I suck at actually 
being a manager of a store and I hate people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the poor guy just couldn't stand dealing with customers day in, day out, right? And, you know, he was a gamer, but not that much of one. Yeah. And he, he, he felt that maybe I had more of that personality. So I took over that store as a manager for him. And I was, I was running that all the way up until the time that I went and moved to the US to, uh, to get married. So, uh, yeah, I mean, game store management is also a good way to get games in that you've never heard of before because you just order them and then read them and then put them on the show. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, that was, um, I guess that was the heyday of games retail in New Zealand and probably around the world in that, in that time um, when it was, it was just thriving and, and um, big. did you, has your kind of um, approach to game design, is, is there anything that you learned as a person on the face, the coal face of retail that you have carried forward and plays in your mind when you do your work now? Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, some, not a lot of people have been through all the different parts of it. I mean, obviously people have been gamers and fans and play the games and run the games. I've worked as a publisher. I've worked um, as a freelancer. I've worked as retail selling this stuff. I've worked as a retail manager. So all those different angles of it, you know, um, it's important that you sort of get a good sense of what people really want. You know, what do they appeal, what, what appeals to them? It can be very academic if you're like a gamer yourself. I like this game. I'll make a game just like this, but this, but it's different. You know, it's it's like D and D, but it has more spells. You know. Yeah. Um. I quickly saw that people could saw when he's trying to sell stuff to them and pitch them as a as a retail store person. After a while, you realize that I can't sell this thing because there's nothing about it that anyone likes, right? So sit on the shelf and get dust. But you also need to have people try them out. You had to play things in the store. We couldn't do nearly enough of that. Uh, we did a lot of magic because when magic came out, it was the same heyday, right? When they stood the magic together. But for me, it felt like the, you had to really show people what the game was about or try it out yourself or understand it to really click. Um, so I, I got that aspect of it too. You know, games are really only games when you play them. Um, the actual game itself as a text and as a book and a product um, doesn't really, it's not really alive until people are playing it. Mm. So maybe that's a, a good twist on it too. Trying to make money off it, you know, as a retailer and knowing the whole thing about the business and how it's just distribution is a mess and all this other stuff. Yeah, there's a lot you can get um, uh, involved in that will inform you for how you design them later on. Yeah. So you were not the only person in New Zealand working in uh, games retail, but you are the only person from New Zealand who then ended up living in the US and working in the games industry on all these quite significant properties doing really good stuff. So obviously bit of a bit of a journey to get from this side of the world to that side of the world. Um, do you want to, okay, let's, let's pick a, let's pick an end point or a um, kind of an iconic point because uh, Diceratops does um, Dungeons and Dragons shows, D&D is important to our people. You uh, were very connected to the Dragonlance property, which all yep. D&D people will be familiar with. Um, you were, you were kind of shepherding that property for a bunch of years. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, around about 2000 when third edition D&D came out, uh, I had not really been into D&D for a while before that. Like I was still very keen on Dragonlance and I wanted to convert Dragonlance modules to other games. So I tried Avalon Hills RuneQuest through edition. I tried making it that. And this is just me converting it because I was bored living in Kansas uh, at the time and thinking, I haven't got a game group. I'll just, what am I going to do to get my gaming fix, right? And, you know, uh, my wife and I didn't really have the sort of friend group at the time that let us have that experience to play games. Um, so I would work on random stuff, uh, converting games to whatever. But in 2000, we were living in Pennsylvania and we'd moved there and third edition came out and I was really excited by this new set of edition. Something about it just made me feel like it was a good change and I wanted to get in on board the ground level and so on. We went to uh, Gen Con that year when it had been released, right? It was a really big deal. We were the first people to have players' handbooks and which is, you know, well, the stuff, yeah. there were huge amounts of games being uh, run. You can go to different panels and do all that stuff. And my first thought was, I've got to try and convert all these Dragonlance things to, to third edition, you know, get the conversion book, convert from AD&D to third edition, do that. I posted all these things online. 
uh, from a temp job where I was working as a community sort of organizer person, uh, conventions and so on. In my free time, I just been online and started posting stuff onto, you know, Usenet and whatever places. And that was seen by folks who said, okay, well, we're looking for some people to help us do an unofficial Dragonlance conversion project. So a lot of other designers got together and fans and stuff. In turn, that group was made uh, official by Tracy and Margaret as, you know, here's, the, here's our official fan group. Uh, and here are these people doing conversions. If you want to do Dragonlance in third edition, you should look at that. Uh, and not long after that, Margaret actually got the license from Wizards to actually do it for her company. And uh, although we were kind of volunteering at the time and helping out and testing things um, soon enough, they said, well, we should give you actual money for this. And so I started working for her and writing it. And it just went up from there. So yeah, the Dragonlance stuff was amazing. And I think I credit mostly third edition for that kind of re-inspiration for D&D because before that, you know, I wasn't really a terribly attached to anything that Wizards was doing or TSR before that. Mm -hmm. But uh, this whole idea of being on the ground floor and being able to sort of show people what you can do with it and convert it and see that new people can come in who are into the novels but haven't played in a long time because it had been, what, at that time, 16 years since they first put out the Dragonlance books and, you know, people just tend to forget about it, go nostalgic. But, um, no, that was a huge moment for me. I, as a big fan, going to Gen Con and then hanging out with Margaret and Tracy and writing for them and doing work for them was just a big, big, uh, big thing. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's, I, I haven't heard that story before. That's, that's extremely cool. And it's a very, very early 2000s story when um, there was kind of this, this free-for-all with people just making stuff and sharing it. There was no online market. There was no PDF market for stuff. There was no kind of regulation for a lot of things that were happening around, um, around the game. I do remember, um, as you say, that there was kind of this official fan group. That, that was how Wizards decided they were going to manage it. Each of the worlds they had, they created a little official group. for. There was one for Planescape and one for... Ravenloft and one for Mistara and whatever and, and so yeah so that was that was the door that you uh, kind of found yourself knocking on almost inadvertently it sounds like yeah and that was amazing um, the other side of it too being official uh, was that although everyone else had to use the open game license and the SRD and D20 which was limiting you know you could make all sorts of things and, and mm. publish them yourself but you couldn't use everything that D&D had uh, we were allowed to um, and so even if this source book had come out like the previous week, often we had early advanced knowledge of what it was going to be in it. So I could write up a special way of doing rules that was going to work with that and then use them in, you know, the next thing. So we had done the noble class in um, the Dragonlance campaign setting book that came out. It was 3.5 that we first started doing it. So 3.5 had just started. Um, I got advanced notice of that. We had the 3.5 books before they were released to anyone else, you know, I still might even have them there, like in ring binders, and you know. Yeah. Um, and it had changed a little bit from then to where it got published. But uh, Dragonlance was the first 3.5 campaign setting. They had already put out, you know, some of the other stuff before that, but this was the first time that happened. And they had used as noble class in the Wheel of Time game. Um, yeah. D&D. It was like obviously D20, but it was a Wizards thing. So I said, let's take the noble and use that Dragonlance to help us have a new class to handle people like, you know, Lorana and other characters. And they said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So, yeah, we could borrow things from Wizards of the Books, which was not a thing that you could do uh, necessarily for other people. So that was the kind of, uh, made you feel like you're kind of in a bit of a VIP club having that access. It was really neat because uh, everyone else had to kind of make do with the OGL. So mm. yeah, it was fun to do that. Wow. So, um, from Dragonlance, you then built on the relationship with Margaret Weiss Productions to get involved in the licensed games that they were doing. Yeah. And um, that was, you've already referred to some of them because it's the origins of the Cortex system and as that you started to develop. I'd, I've seen you refer elsewhere to your ability to um, kind of imbibe fictional worlds in order to um kind of deploy them when you're working in these licensed settings could you could you talk a little bit about that is this something you've always been good at kind of soaking up a fictional reality how does how does that go um 
I guess the, one of the ways that my brain works is I like continuity and, and canon. Like they call it canon in most other places and fandom. It's, I like to sort of sort through and figure out where things went in the timeline and who was related to who and what was what. Um, this is a big part of my enjoyment of DC and Marvel comics, for example. Um, I really love like legacy characters, like the various flashes and the various Hawkman and so on in DC and, and Marvel. I'm always a huge fan of like, well, when, what did this person do? How many Avengers have there ever been? And that kind of stuff. So that whole idea of really knowing all that sort of encyclopedic stuff, but connected together uh, so that it holds together is one of my huge big brain tickles. I love it. You know, it's my favorite thing. So what I would do is deep dive into anything that was on my plate. If I had to work on something, I would just go all in. Um, it's way easier now. You've got the internet, right? Um, and Wikipedia and so forth. But you kind of have to go even further than that. So, you know, I've got um, ugh, this guy. You can't really tell because I've got it, my thing on. But that's uh, one of my several He-Man books. Um, yeah which, you know, there's a lot of information about properties out there which we're working on now that I'm just devouring and making myself kind of an expert on it. Um, I will always say that Dragonlance and Marvel are my two big ones that I really, really like the most. And working on those things made it go even further. So, you know, at one point I knew every single thing about the Dragonlance uh, world of Kryn and all the different characters and all the different books and who was introduced the when and whatever else. It's a little bit rusty now. I haven't worked on it for a while. But um, organizing that into a coherent whole to try and present it as an RPG supplement, that's, that's my thing, right? Yeah. So, did, did you actually read all the novels or did you yeah. rely on summaries? Because there are a lot of novels. Oh, I read all of them, yeah. Wow, and you, <laughs> you wrote more than one, is I that did. right? I did. I wrote one and I wrote a short story. Ah, nice. Which was <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I like obscure characters too from, from lore. I like when you can bring them back. There's a, there's a writer at Marvel right now, Al Ewing, who does this all the time and his stuff mm -hmm. is full of throwaway references to things. And I'm like, oh, cool, that's this thing. You know? um, and we actually had that at the meeting I had in uh, New York with the Marvel offices. Um, there was a guy there who was a VP of publishing who hadn't said much throughout the meeting. And then he was trying to throw us off because uh, myself and Christy, uh, who was the agent uh, for Margaret's agent, her business manager and so on, trying to talk through this whole deal, how it was going to work, what would happen, what kind of books could we put out, what they wanted versus what we wanted and all that kind of stuff. And I think he wasn't certain we were really on to what Marvel was about until he mentioned the character. And I said, oh, that's like Shooting Star's um, boyfriend. He's like, this guy, this guy, in a real New York kind of way. And I'm like, cool, I've, I've, I've convinced him. And he's the VP of publishing. He's, it's good. It's good. It's good. <laughs> the Texas um, Ranger, right? Texas Twister. Texas yes. Twister. Ah, yep, yep. <laughs> I, have a, I, I had the blue suit and the hat in my head, but I didn't, mm -hmm. didn't get the name. <laughs> yeah, wow. Such, a, such a kind of a stupid little like trivial thing, but it was important to, to get that feeling that, that, you know, he was actually extending this out to people who knew and cared about the property. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I feel that's the most important part of any of this sort of negotiations. You don't want to, like, I mean, if you're just doing it for the pure money of it, because you think it's the popular thing right now, that's not really that good. You have to yeah. really like it to work on it. Yeah. Well, the Marvel game, which over my shoulder, obviously, um, it's another another kind of really iconic game. I, I mentioned Smallville before as one that everyone seems to talk about a lot, and um, the Marvel um, Marvel Heroic is that was that a Marvel Heroic, yeah, yeah. Um, again, another kind of iconic game that that is just just held in enormous esteem, and um, cut down too soon, as is the way with licensed games. It sounds like they they get taken away before their time. Um, yeah, so a real a real shame that that didn't kind of get to run as long as the Marvel superheroes game in the eighties. But mm -hmm. it feels to me like um, the Marvel heroic it kind of it presented what I recognise in this Cortex Prime book to um, the world for the first time. Did it what, did it feel like that to you that this was this was a real stepping stone towards something new? Yeah, um, to some degree, I think what was what was interesting about working on that and having a lot of really good people work on it with me is uh, we would bounce around ideas even uh, early, very, very, very on. Um, John Harper was the man responsible for the, the look of that game. I mean, the, the style of the 
character sheets and the, the sort of the graphic presentation. And although um, Jeremy Keller came on after that and later on um, uh, Daniel Solis and other people were working on, it was basically John's initial sort of like pitch to us. Here's how I think Marvel would look cool. And we're like, that's exactly how I imagine it in my head. You, you've done it, you know. Um, and there was a lot of this sort of back and forth very, very early on. One of the things that was most actually interesting was that the, the licensing people at Marvel said, um, look, you know, the rules about Marvel licenses is you have to have a sort of different separation between the Marvel brand and your brand, right? And I'm like, well, I mean, our brand, it's a Marvel brand. No, no, you need to have a brand of your own. Heroclix is Heroclix. Marvel Heroclix is, is not the same as DC Heroclix, right? And so if you look at the cover of the actual basic game behind you, that's Marvel's up top and heroic role playing is down the bottom because we had to have that separation. And so our brand is heroic role playing, <laughs> which is a silly thing to try and make as a brand. But theirs is Marvel. So Marvel heroic role playing is the name of the game. Yeah. But if there was a world in which we had DC or, or um, Image or something else, it would have been DC heroic role-playing or Image role you know, uh, That's the only way that could work. And the funny thing about that is that kind of made me think later on that uh, flavors of Cortex could happen. You could have a Cortex heroic, you could have Cortex, you know, and they called it action for leverage and Cortex drama for Smallville. But we'd only called those things that because at the time when we didn't have a license for them anymore, if we want to use them for something else, we couldn't refer to them as leverage rules and small little rules. We had to say, you know, this is Cortex plus drama, Cortex plus action and Cortex. There was never ever supposed to be some kind of like specific set of rules for those things. Um, we were always going to reinvent the, the rules for the game like we did with Firefly. is isn't really like any other game we did before. But in the process, people kind of started talking about it. Like, oh, this is, the, this is Cortex plus drama, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the, the whole thing with Marvel was that it really just set me aside thinking about branding and about how to try and pull things together in a way that made it sense for future implementations of it, yeah. uh, which is kind of how we get with Prime now. Yeah. One of the things that I remember about the heyday of Marvel heroic role-playing um, was how it re- kind of really quickly seemed to get a reputation as being a good entry game i remember seeing little video clips of enormous rooms filled with different tables playing through the scenario in that in that basic book and um it seemed like there were lots and lots of people kind of coming to role playing for the very first time this was kind of pre-critical role pre the online streaming movement so the the huge boom hadn't happened but there were there were people finding their way to this game and and it seemed to be an enormous gateway was that kind of your your experience of it that new people were coming to role-playing through this game yeah um it's quite surprising i mean like for one thing we were only allowed to sell in north america we couldn't sell this game overseas that didn't stop like you know amazon and book depository everybody else grabbing it and selling it overseas but we couldn't sell it into europe and so the fact that people around the world were getting it was a big deal but for us the real center i would say of of this game's popularity was east coast um and at the time, we had the sort of the East Coast gaming uh, groups, um, like John Stravopoulos has talked about them before in the past. This is like in the you know, end of the 2000s and early 2010s. And then there was PAX. And I went to PAX East with this game, with Jeremy Keller. The two of us were there representing Margaret Wise Productions. And, you know, they had given us a booth in the video game hall, but not the gaming tabletop hall they just started doing tabletop at the time they hadn't done much of it and i think that that's that's the time that the um penny arcade guys were starting to talk about D and do their whole you know overlap from from video games into, into tabletop and it really was near the beginning of this right and so um there were some vendors out there in the hall and they had like this the early version of i guess it was the beginning of the um uh game on games on demand Right, and so Games in Demand at PAX that year when Marvel came out, you know, you'd go there, if someone could run a game, you, the players would say, I want to play this game, and the GM would come up and run it for you, right? So that's a really cool idea. So people were showing up at PAX who were mostly geek slash video game folks, and a little bit of tabletop, I would say, right? And a lot of them were showing up and going out there and saying, oh, do you have this new Marvel game? I've seen it as Marvel game. So at one point there was, that's all they were playing at a certain point was just Marvel. And I felt really, really bad because there were like other indie games not being played because 
swarms of people were showing up to play Marvel. Now I felt good about that, but I also felt kind of like, oh, well, you know, and so I got some grumbles from folks, but that's really the popularity of this East coast sort of swarm of people who are just yeah. grabbing onto it. Um, and I found that one of the things that was most interesting about this whole experience was there are people who are new to gaming, new to tabletop, who did who picked it up like like it was easy, right? Um, these are kids and teenagers and, and young adults and stuff in a game store and and playing in different places. But older, more experienced or veterans of games were like, oh, I can't figure it out. What 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 is this? I mean, where's the how do I make a character? Yeah. And what is how I you know. And I'd have these conversations with sort of grognards, I guess, you know, who are saying, I can't figure out this game. And yet the very uh, previous day, I had a conversation with someone brand new and said, you know, I sat down at the source in Rosedale in uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul. I said, here's this game. You can play Wolverine or you can be Spider-Man or Iron Man. And they said, cool. And they were playing within minutes, no problems at all. So uh, I don't know what to make of that. I think... A lot of people had to unlearn to, to play it. Yeah, but that's fine. Yeah, that's that's. Um, I I was yeah wondering um, about exactly that point, and and it was on my list of things to ask you about because it is, um, I guess, uh, Cortex is just it's just kind of different enough from the assumptions of ordinary play, um, ordinary um, kind of the commonplace assumptions that. Yeah, uh, I guess people run into problems with it. I don't. I don't feel like I've I've encountered that myself directly. But then I, I've been soaking in indie games for a long time, so yeah, that does probably help. yeah. Um, but one of the other great assets that you've got with this edition of Cortex, apart from um, kind of the, the the beautiful text that you've got in there, it's kind of really clearly. Um, expressed it's 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 just a great bit of uh, of kind of technical writing a great feat of technical writing to communicate so clearly um you've also got the backing of the game's publishers fandom yep and um i just yeah we're, we're kind of starting to run out of time so i'd love for you to just talk a little bit about what it means that cortex prime is with fandom because fandom are um they're best known for D&D Beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of a, a huge achievement. There have been a lot of attempts to do um, kind of online or computer-based support for Dungeons & Dragons going way back into the 90s that have not been any good. And they have not only cracked it, but they they just absolutely nailed it. And it's become an essential part of how a lot of people play. So they are obviously very good at what they do. Um, how is what they do going to be uh, kind of helpful or, or what's it going to do for Cortex? And what's, what's ahead? Is that what I'm asking? I guess I'm asking what's ahead yeah. for Cortex? <laughs> <laughs> um, really, uh, very first thing, we were the first conversation I had with Adam Bradford, who is the VP of Tabletop at Fandom now, um, when he brought me on was like, we wanted to be somehow tied into a digital launch. Like we really want us to be a digital game as well as being just a, a, a traditional pen and paper kind of thing. And, for, to my mind, that's going to be super important. It has been supported so far because of this whole um, corona thing and everyone moving on to online streaming and, and playing games with friends online. Having that ability to play and organize and manage your game session, like the way that D&D Beyond does it with characters and things, but now even now with the dice rolling they've got there, um, it's so good with the Cortex because, you know, as much as I love this game, it does have a bit of a crunch factor in it because of those pulls you have to sort of manage all the time. And being able to sort of know that you can pull dice from your screen onto a pool and then just roll that and it figures out your results and things and tells you stuff, gives you more time to spend playing the game and less time sort of going, oh, which dice do I roll for this and whatever. Um, and for me, that's the, the magic button, you know. That tied in with the fact that we're hoping to be able to provide everyone with this ability to put your own game together from the pieces, yeah. build your own character sheet, um, choose which options you want to use in the game and have that saved off as a kind of a game build of your own. That kind of stuff is just gold, you know? And this would be the first game I would say that's ever had that kind of capacity to, to come into the marketplace with that. Um, you know, D&D didn't come provided with D&D Beyond. Mm. Uh, and uh, no one else has really done that in the same way. And so in this case, we're, we 
had the digital aspect in mind since the very beginning of working on this book. So really exciting. I'm, I can't wait to see what, what, um, what we're looking at when we're talking about Cortex in a year or so, what kind of uh, tools or five years or 10 years down the line. It's um, yeah. yeah, I think it's really, really exciting. So um, we should, we should probably wrap up. Um, There's obviously heaps more that we could talk about because you have many, you have done cool stuff, Cam, and and (laughs) we've only scratched the surface. Um, But for today, I think that's, that's probably plenty. So if people want to know more about Cam Banks and Cortex Plus, where do they go? How do they, um, Cortex Plus, Cortex Prime, where do they uh, find you? And um, yeah, where do they look for you? Well, um, on Twitter, I'm at, I'm at Boy Monster. I have been for a long time. Um, for the game itself, at Cortex RPG is the Twitter handle. We've also got them on Facebook. Um, CortexRPG.com is the website. And in fact, if you get that book, you've got the code in the front uh, cover. Don't show it to the screen because people can grab it. But each book comes with a unique code. You can use it to unlock a PDF version of the book and uh, the online companion, which is like a browser-based version of the rule book. So, and that will just get bigger and bigger and bigger as time goes on. We're hoping, hoping to have a lot more going on that site. Um, and it's all the, all the information I have right now. Um, yep. But you do, should follow us on Twitter. I, I'm on there all the time. It's, it's too much. We have a Discord, um, which I could probably give you so you could share a link somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's quite busy. Lots of people just chatting about various builds of Cortex all the time and uh, asking me questions and me jumping in once in a while to answer them. Great. Yeah, I'll definitely throw those those links in the notes. It's a great pleasure to talk to you, Cam. Thank you. Oh, thanks for inviting me on. Thanks for listening to Diceratops Presents. As always, we'd love to hear your questions and contributions. Wellington friends, grab your tickets for the live show. Make sure you say hi if you're a podcast listener. We'd love to meet you. And we'd love it if you did the rate and review thing and the telefriend thing. You know why it's a podcast. Our theme music is the Sunday song by the K1500 Project. Check out their music. Find us on all the socials at Diceratops NZ. Let the good dice roll.